Our selection of readings from Proverbs this morning uh, has to deal with pride. So listen now to God's Word. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Whoever derides their neighbor has no sense, but the one who has understanding holds their tongue. Where there is strife, there is pride, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but he sets the widow's boundary stones in place. Wisdom's instruction is to fear the Lord, and humility comes before honor. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be lowly in spirit along with the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the unplowed field of the wicked produce sin. Those who trust in themselves are fools, but those who walk in wisdom are kept safe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I meant it when I said it earlier this morning. Uh, First, I just want to again call out that it's, it's so fun to see faces here in the room that haven't seen in months, maybe over a year. It's just, it's a delight to, to increasingly be back together in this space of worship. So I just wanted to say that again. But as we listen to those, those scriptures, those, those proverbs that Dave read, you know, I think it reminds us that there, there are certain comparisons that, that might seem fairly easy on surface value, right? Like certain value judgments where it doesn't seem like it takes a lot of wisdom or discernment to identify right from wrong, good for bad, like, for example, hugs, good, murder, bad, you know, love, good, hate, bad, faithfulness, good, infidelity, bad, Vikings, good, Packers, bad. Uh, you know, I could go on and on, but, but I, I think the, uh, the focus of today's selection of texts would easily fall into that list, right? Humility, good, pride, bad. And, and while the world may not always agree with that assessment, I think at least in the church, that seems like 101 level stuff, right? Like pride is bad news, but humility, that's, that's the mark of a wise person and it leads to life. And I think as we look at Proverbs, we'd love it if it just gave us, you know, three easy steps to avoid pride and, and to become humble, especially on something like this that might seem so obvious, but that's just not how it works. That's not how Proverbs works. Proverbs generally doesn't give us that option, which can be really frustrating for us as Americans because we love our quick fixes and our one, two, three, step-by-step processes to address things. But Proverbs doesn't give us methods. We've talked about this already in this series. Rather, Proverbs is aimed at forming a kind of character in us. It, It tells us that this is the kind of person you must become, and then you will make wise decisions. And, and so where we're going to go this morning is looking at, at the character of pride, the character of humility, and the way that that character is shown in different actions, the way that there are these nuances and traits that, that help reveal to us how pride works itself out in our lives, and, and on, the, on the flip side, how humility is manifest. So let's start by looking at what these Proverbs have to say about the character of pride. Now, we're all familiar with the saying, pride comes before the fall. And while Proverbs never uses that exact phrasing, in Proverbs 16, verse 18, it gets pretty darn close where Solomon says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And in in chapter 11, verse 2, which they've also read, there are shades of that same sentiment where, where Solomon writes, 
when pride comes, then comes disgrace. There's a sequence here. When pride or when we become prideful, it's only a matter of time before we reap what we sow and we face the consequences of our pride. Destruction and disgrace are the words Solomon uses that, that come fast on the heels of pride. And I think we can all probably think of multiple examples of this in real life, of folks who maybe were rich and famous, whose, whose trust lied in their own cunning and, and power, and whose fall was then swift and shameful. And in today's reading, Solomon tells us that pride creates strife. It produces sin. Now, why, why might it produce strife? As Solomon argues in, in chapter 13, verse 10, he says that uh, it results from this desire to be better than others. C.S. Lewis, I, I like the way he puts it. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. And, and I think Lewis is right on here. Pride produces strife because we have this, this desire to be better than others or to have more than others or to have something that others don't have, to see ourselves as superior, which leads to strife for obvious reasons. And I think if we don't, think that we're guilty of this, I think it's worth asking the question, what guides the decisions that you make? The career choices that you make, the, the schools or athletic programs that you place your children in, the houses or cars or neighborhoods that you covet. Tim Keller pokes at this when he asks, what if the reason that you do everything that you're doing isn't because you enjoy it, because you like it, but rather because you're trying to amass a resume, you're trying to prove yourself? I mean, how many of us feel like in some way we need to prove ourselves? And that's a tough feeling to overcome, but it's at this point that we have to be especially careful because I think the Proverbs are trying to reveal that it's quite likely that pride is what lurks behind that feeling. Another dynamic of pride that, that Proverbs gets at comes in chapter 11, verse 12, where, where Solomon says that uh, the prideful person derides their neighbor. Because often what happens in, in the moment that we recognize that we actually aren't better than other people or, or the moment where we fear that maybe others are passing us up, then we start to fight like crazy. We jockey for position. And so if we can't prove ourselves superior, then at least we'll work to show why someone else is inferior. And again, I, I think we can think of examples of this throughout history, not just at individual levels, but societal levels even. I mean, we, we've talked before about you know, within our own country's history and with racism, how this can manifest itself as pride over and over again. I, I think of the Tulsa massacre as, as a tragic and prominent example of this. But that's what pride does. It causes us to fear the success of another because we see it as a threat to our own worth. And it always leads to destruction. Other ways that, that pride produces strife. Uh, immediately after Solomon tells us that where there's strife, there's pride, he contrasts it with wisdom, and he notes there that wisdom is found in those who take advice. By implication, the pride don't take advice. You see, the prideful person has to believe they've got it all figured out. The mere suggestion that they might be wrong sends a prideful person into a tizzy. And if I'm being honest, this is the area that I most personally see pride well up in me. Uh, I, I hate 
being wrong. And I both hate admitting to myself that I might be wrong, but I hate even more acknowledging out loud to another person that I was wrong and that they just might be right. I mean, if I think of the times that I've been most likely to be a jerk towards my wife, it's definitely been where I knew that she was right and I was wrong. Right? I mean, in those instances, we'll fight to the bitter end to somehow prove ourselves to be right, won't we? And that's strife. It leads to strife. And there's just very practical reasons why pride is destructive, why it leads to strife. It hinders our ability to learn from our mistakes or to recognize the value of an outside perspective. I mean, what do they say is the definition of insanity? To do the same thing over and over again but expect different results? That's pride. And so the prideful person falls because they just can't get out of their own way. And as we continue to examine the character of pride, we also have to remember how insanely self-conscious pride is. Uh, The dictionary definition of pride is just inordinate self-esteem. And and it's not far off from what's being referred to in many of these Proverbs. Inordinate self-esteem. Proverbs 28, 26 says that those who trust in themselves are fools. They're fools. Fools have an inflated sense of self, an unhealthy ego, a belief that we possess within ourselves all that we need. And when I put it that way, Defining pride is the belief that we have in ourselves all that we need to succeed. We might want to say, hold up, wait a minute, not so fast. That, that doesn't sound so bad. I mean, truthfully, that does kind of sound like the epitome of, of American ideals and so much of our modern self-help, right? I mean, we love the belief that we should just be able to pick ourselves up by the bootstraps and achieve whatever we set our minds to. That the only thing keeping us from the life that we've always wanted isn't is that we're not believing enough in ourselves or recognizing what we are capable of. But Solomon knows better. He's experienced for himself a life of incomparable achievement and accumulation, yet he recognizes that the moment he sees himself as the source of it all or elevates his own worth above others, it only ends in destruction. And and sadly, if you look at the life of Solomon, that's what happens. But but as we'll now see, the wise person recognizes a completely different source for their worth. We've spent most of our time to this point looking at the intrapersonal and interpersonal dynamics of pride. But there's also this cosmic dimension to pride that's critical to address. Uh, in, In the very first sermon I gave on Proverbs that started off this series, I talked about how wisdom leads to living a life that goes with the grain of the universe, that lives in harmony with the pattern of life as God intended it to be lived. And pride, on the other hand, goes against the grain of the universe because it goes against the very character of God. How so, you might ask? Well, first, pride, as we've discussed, tends to see self as the source of all possibility and worth. It believes that I am all that I need and that my success depends on me. But God has a thing or two to say about that. The last time I I preached, we looked at the theme of the fear of the Lord in Proverbs, how that's the antidote and the source of wisdom. We saw that in this recognition of God's immense power and worth, 
It's a presence so great we can't help but be in awe. And as Eugene Peterson defined it, he said, Fear of the Lord possesses nearly all of the traits of being afraid, but without the scary parts. Pride just doesn't have any such fear of the Lord. Pride puts self at the center of the universe. The word that is used for pride in chapter 15, 25, and 16, verse 19, is the Hebrew word for supreme majesty. It's a term that's generally only used for God in Scripture, and yet Solomon recognizes that's what we're claiming for ourselves when we don't fear the Lord and instead pridefully trust in self. Supreme majesty. And what's interesting is that even God doesn't really seek his own glory in that way. I mean, that's one of the unique aspects of the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. In the Trinity, we don't see prideful glory-seeking. Rather, we see that each member of the Trinity gives glory to the others. The Father glorifies the Son. Jesus glorifies the Father, and so on and so on. In this divine dance known as the Trinity, in God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is this other orientation. There is self-giving love. But pride, pride possesses no such other orientation or self-giving love. And there's one other way uh, along those lines that pride goes against the grain of the universe, and it's actually an intersection of really the cosmic and the interpersonal. You know, we've discussed this many times before, but if there's one theme that's, that's very consistent in Scripture from beginning to end, it is that God has a heart for the oppressed and the marginalized. God loves so dearly the people who have lost in the struggle in this world for position and power. He is unabashedly for such people. And in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 25, it says, The Lord tears down the house of the proud. Judgment. But he sets the widow's boundary stones in place. And let's talk about that image, because that might be a little foreign to us. But in those days, property boundaries were often marked by large, heavy stones. And, and yet widows in particular, because they had no one to defend them in, in a patriarchal society like that, they would be especially susceptible to others taking advantage of them with no form of recourse. And so, you know, somebody whose property may be butted up against that of a widow could simply move the boundary stone if he wanted to to increase his property, which was the primary indicator and determiner of wealth in those days. And so in Scripture, the idea of a moved boundary marker comes to stand as an image for all injustice against weaker persons. But Solomon tells us that Yahweh, that God, makes sure the boundary stone continues to stand right where it is. And so if we're willing to take advantage of or not defend the marginalized and powerless, we are on a collision course with the very being of God and God's future because God will lift up the poor and lowly just as the songs of Hannah and Mary express. God will be found among the humble. Which brings us now to, to look at the character of the humble. While pride leads to destruction, Solomon tells us that humility leads to honor. That it is worth more than riches. So what exactly is humility? Well, as a starting definition, let me again go back to C.S. Lewis. He, he asserted that humility is not to think less of yourself, but to think of yourself less. Let me say that again. Humility is not to think less of yourself, but to think of yourself less. Humility doesn't mean that you're telling yourself you're unimportant, you're worthless, or any such thing. Rather, humility is the work of shifting our gaze and focus outward. 
both towards God in reverent fear and towards others in self-giving love. Solomon directly connects that kind of honor that humility produces as finding its source in the fear of the Lord. And, and in these Proverbs, we're given some very tangible expressions of that kind of humility in everyday life. And we already mentioned that, that wisdom is found among those who are willing to take advice. Humility recognizes we don't have it all figured out, that we just might be wrong sometimes, that other people just might have something to offer us. Humility draws us out of self and into connection with others, if only we'll receive what they have to offer us. But there's more. In Proverbs 11, verse 12, Solomon reveals that the wise person holds their tongue. Now, this one's kind of interesting because Solomon's not saying here that the humble or wise person is always wrong or always in need of advice. Rather, he's just saying that sometimes the wise person recognizes it's better to say nothing at all. And again, after almost 19 years of marriage, I've learned the wisdom of this proverb sometimes the hard way because often in our relationships, the best thing to say can be to say nothing. Can I get an amen? But I, I think that this proverb and others like it isn't, isn't merely asking us to make changes in our speaking habits. Rather, wisdom calls us to look at our lives through the eyes of our neighbor, seeing the value of our lives in connection with the value that they bring to others. The wise person, the humble person, recognizes the impact of their words, the impact they have on others, and, and desires to use them in a way that's life-giving refraining from using words that might cause harm. And lastly, today's selection of Proverbs reveals the oft-overlooked connection between humility and the work of justice, of humility in identifying with the, the oppressed and the marginalized among us. I mean, we already noted just a moment ago that, that God stands against the proud and works on behalf of the widow, and, and the widow really as the personification of marginalized people. And we also briefly alluded to, to Proverbs 16, 19, where Solomon writes, Better to be lowly in spirit, in other words, humble, along with the oppressed, than to share plunder with the proud. In other words, if the cost of, of our wealth and our material gain is associating with the society's elite, powerful, separating ourselves from the poor and oppressed, it's not worth it. Better in that case to be in a meager social position, to be counted among the marginalized. Again, in our American context, where we tend to idolize wealth and fame and status, these proverbs serve as a necessary caution. Now, one other interesting connection on this point comes from Proverbs 11, verse 2, where it says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. Now, we're going to miss this connection in our English translations, but in the Hebrew, the word that's translated as with humility is found only once elsewhere in Scripture, and it comes in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, where the prophet lists the requirements God has of his people, notably to work for justice, to be merciful, and to walk with humility, to have a humble posture in our relationship with God. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. That's the character of a wise person summed up in one verse. Well, as we wind down this morning, I, I want to close by giving us a concrete picture of, of what such humility looks like in action. Because 
while these Proverbs can provide necessary and helpful guidance, the truth of the matter is we can still be left wondering how we best live it out. And this can be doubly true when we talk about humility. What does a humble life actually look like? And this might come as no surprise, but, but I want to close by drawing our attention to the ultimate expression of humility, the perfect revelation of wisdom, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And to do this, let's turn our attention to Philippians chapter 2, where Paul gives perhaps the clearest instruction regarding what humility looks like when he writes this. Do nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In other words, never let pride guide your actions. But in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, Paul writes, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, and don't miss this connection, therefore, meaning because Jesus humbled himself in this way, therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that's above every other name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is completely consistent with Proverbs 15.33 where Solomon writes that humility comes before honor. God exalts Jesus to the place of highest honor because of his perfect humility. Now there's some ambiguity about that section about Jesus, uh, whether or not it originated with Paul. And many scholars actually believe that what Paul's doing here is quoting an ancient creed, perhaps the earliest of church creeds, one that would have been recited in early churches and probably known by the Philippians. And, and what lies at the center of that creed about Jesus? Again, it's his humility, how he humbled himself on the cross, becoming one of us. And when we actually look at Jesus' life, we see the full extent to which God humbles himself in the person of Jesus. I mean, setting aside some, some divine attributes to take on human flesh would be humbling enough, but God chooses to be incarnated into straw poverty, I mean, born in an animal's feeding trough, into an oppressed people group on the margins of society and empire, ultimately dying a criminal's death on a cross, Jesus knowingly associated with those whom most of society ignored or even openly despised. And towards the end of his life, Jesus humbled himself in the presence of his disciples, washing their feet, at which point he told them, I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done unto you. Jesus is our model, our example. He's left us with his spirit to empower us to be able to live lives that are marked by that kind of humility. We have to remember that the, the path to living a life of Christ-like humility requires humility even at its entry point. We must humble ourselves and against all that pride calls out in us, admit that we can't do it on our own that we don't possess in ourselves all that is necessary, that we need God, that we need to submit ourselves to Jesus and his lordship. We need to look outside ourselves for meaning and true life. It's the invitation of the cross 
that we must also pick up our own cross. And paradoxically, to realize that in laying down our lives for Jesus and for others, that's where life is actually found. That's humility. So sisters and brothers, may we heed the wisdom that these Proverbs offer us. May God grant us the wisdom to reject the allure of pride and embrace the path of humility, shaping a Christ-like character in us. And may we trust the promise that's left to us in Proverbs 28, 26, that those who walk in such wisdom will be delivered and kept safe in the loving hands of God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, please pray with me.